thanks, Bronwyn, and thank you to the team that's led us so well today. We uh, are in an interesting period as a church family, as uh, Colin spoke to you about earlier. We are approaching an annual general meeting, which uh, by definition happens once a year, and it's when we all get together and talk about things that are important to us. And we are in the process of appointing leaders for our congregation, and those, those are quite significant things that we're a part of. And so last week, uh, when we came together, I talked to you about just the way that things are organised in our church, um, because we have lots of different backgrounds. Um, they come from lots of different experiences of life and of church and all that kind of stuff. So it was good just to be very, very practical about that. Um, today, we're going to uh, think about the one thing that any church, doesn't matter how it's organised, what their worship looks like, what their programs are, what culture they're in, what music they use, whatever all of those differences might be in any kind of uh, community of people who are following Jesus. What's something that we all have in common? Well, we've got the one Lord and Saviour and we have the one Holy Spirit and the one Heavenly Father and all those sorts of things. And importantly, we've been given one job. You know that kind of saying, you have one job, don't mess it up. So there's only one job that churches have and it's expressed in a lot of different ways. For many of us, the most uh, vivid um, example of that was Jesus as he's preparing to go back to heaven and he gives this job to his followers and this is the job that the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years and that you and I are a part of today. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, just like churches organise themselves in a whole bunch of different ways, there are lots and lots of different ways of going about that one job. There are specific people that God calls us to, to do it. And we mentioned uh, Jason and Cindy earlier. What does it mean to make disciples in Japan? Well, it's probably going to look at quite different to what it means to make disciples here in Australia, a part of a different culture with different understandings and different ways of communicating and all that kind of stuff. So we have to figure this out in the different contexts that we serve in, in the different ways that God has gifted us and called us. There's going to be a million different varieties of how we do it, but that is the one thing that we are to do. And you know that something that will help every single one of us, no matter who we are, as we seek to go about this one job? It's knowing the man who did it first. It's knowing how Jesus went about the role of making disciples. Because he's the one, no matter all of those differences and whatever they might be, he's the one who is our common Lord, the one who teaches us. He's the one who is our common example, the one who shows us how it ought to be done. And so we're going to spend a bit of time today thinking, well, how did Jesus make disciples? Because none of us, as far as I'm aware, are old enough to have been around at the time and participated in the disciple making that was going on that when these guys heard about it they would have gone yep we know what that looks like we've been doing it for the last three years so we need to make sure that our uh, understanding is uh, built up as we turn to God's word and to look at how discipleship happened in Jesus's day and how it can look like for us today so let's dive in to understanding who was Jesus as somebody who discipled others. What did that look like? What was unique about him? And what can we learn from the way that he did it? And if we're going to understand that, we need to understand something of the path that Jesus took in order to become this rabbi, this Jewish teacher who was training people in how to follow God. So let's dive in. And we're going to start the journey uh, in school. 
Now, what are your memories of school like? For some of us, we work there. So it's like that was Friday and it was traumatic or it was wonderful or whatever. Uh, but most of us have been through some kind of schooling, homeschooling or a private school or a public school, whatever that might have looked like for you, you've been to school. Now, Jesus' journey toward being a rabbi who would make disciples, who would lead people in following uh, the ways of God, uh, started off, like all other kids, in a place called Bet Sefer which means the house of the book. What do you reckon the book was? Yeah, you might call it the Bible in, in our experience today. Specifically for them, it was the Torah. It was the first five books. Now, they had more scriptures. Their scriptures as a whole were called the Tanakh, uh, which is the law and the prophets you might know it as, or the law, the prophets and the writings. Uh, specifically, Bet Sefer, they learned the first part of that, the law, the first five books of the Bible. And essentially, that meant from the age of five or six, uh, some girls would go along to this, but mostly it was boys. It was nearly all the boys, um, unless there was some kind of exceptional circumstances where a boy couldn't go. All boys were expected to go, but girls were allowed to go, and some did. And they would focus on memorising the Torah. So from generous, generous, that's not it, Genesis through to Deuteronomy, they would be memorising as much as they could. Now, how do you go about memorising things? Someone's like, I've given up long ago. That's, that's what I've got a smartphone for. Uh, no, no, you remember school, right? So you would do it through repetition. You would go over and over, recite. Did anyone learn the, the times tables that way? And then we heard that our kids weren't doing that anymore and we said, oh, that's rubbish. That's the only way to learn. You repeat until you've got it. Well, repetition is one way to learn. And for sure, they would have been reciting these verses together as classes. Not just you know, a verse here and there, but whole passages and, and going longer and longer as they got older. Um, what else do you do to, to learn things and to remember things? <laughs> By making mistakes and being corrected. So yes, whoever had to stand up in front of a class and recite, again, I'll pick on the times table, or we used to call it the hundred demons, you know, there, there were this, these things that you're supposed to remember, spelling words and so on. Um, and you know that terror of having to say it in front of somebody and you don't want to mess up, but the fear of messing up means that you do the work and make sure you've got it right. So, so there would have been that performance aspect where, okay, it's your turn, Johnny. You know, you're going you're gonna to recite for as long as you can, starting at Deuteronomy 5, let's go. Um, and he would see how it goes. So there's the performance aspect. Um, anyone learn by singing? I think in our family that's one of the big ways. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Anyone know that one? Okay, I'll stop there. So, so for many of us, there are Bible verses that have been put to music and that helps us to remember. So in their culture, similarly, there would be ways of singing, very different types of tunes than what I've just shown you, but ways of singing the words of Scripture so that they remember them. Um, and the other thing that you can do to learn things is by playing games. And we do that in the car sometimes. Hey, I'm a Bible character. And you give bits of information and the kids have to guess who it is. So there's ways of helping people remember important things by playing games. And uh, so for Jesus, like all the boys uh, in his age and some of the girls, he would have been from, from a very young age, six days a week, going to this Bible school uh, in order to learn the first five books of the Bible as a foundation for the rest of their lives. But it didn't stop there. Once you've progressed through Bet Sefer, the house of the book, you would go to Bet Talmud, which is the house of learning. And uh, this is for the boys from age 10. The girls have normally finished Bet Sefer and that's uh, done for them for schooling. They would go off and learn domestic duties. Some of them would have um, already left school, depending on what their parents wanted for them. 
But boys generally would uh, either go and work for their uh, family uh, or they would continue on into the house of learning from the age of 10. They're continuing that Torah memorization and they also begin learning the sayings of the rabbis through a question and answer method. So as well as just learning what the Torah says, they're now getting into the habit of discussing it. So what do you think it might look like to do what this verse is talking about? Or what should we, why do we wash our hands after we've been in the marketplace? And kids are uh, expected to remember, oh, this is the verse that applies to that. But then they're also um, learning to recite what the rabbi said about that verse and why now it looks like lots of hand washing after you've been to the market and after you've done this and after you've done that. So how do I connect what I'm reading in the Torah to the traditions and to the habits and to the way we do what we do? They're helping the boys to get a grasp of that. And it's always, not through what do you think, what do you, what, what do you reckon is the best way to apply this? It's all, what have the rabbis said? Who are the wise people and what have they shown us about how to apply the Torah to our everyday life? So that's uh, from the age of 10. Now, let's tune into something that we read about the life of Jesus. And this is from Luke chapter 2, from verse 41. Every year his parents travelled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents didn't know it. And it's like, hey, if you've seen me at a shopping centre, I can understand leaving a kid or two behind. I've done that. Um, but it's probably more excusable for them because they didn't just travel as a family somewhere. Um, they travelled as a whole community for these festivals. So, um, you know, their relatives um, and uh, neighbours and so on, they'd head down to Jerusalem, have this festival. All the kids are playing with each other. There's always an adult somewhere looking after uh, the kids and then off you go. And as you're travelling, again, you know, he's probably back with his cousins or his, or his mate from down the road. Um, but when they go to camp at night, what do they discover? Oh, he's, he's not here at all. Um, that, that's a bit of a oh-no moment, isn't it? <laughs> um, so back they go... Uh, and they return to Jerusalem to try find Jesus. And after three days, or on the third day, so can you imagine, realised at nightfall, oh dear, go back, okay, probably took you a day to get there, and then you're just looking around, looking around, and eventually you find him. Uh, and he was in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And just pause there, because I've always imagined that as the temple being where all the adults went and, and the religious leaders and the important people, and all of a sudden you've got this 12-year-old kid um, as a complete kind of anomaly. It's like, what is he doing there? But when you learn about um, Bet Talmud and the fact that at the temple was the, the, the best school of learning in the nation. In fact, the Apostle uh, Paul, who we heard about earlier, one of the things that he relates to his fellow Jew Jews is he was from a place far away called Tarsus. Um, his parents, who were quite wealthy, sent him to the school under Gamaliel in Jerusalem because that was the best school to go to if you wanted to become a rabbi, if you wanted to become a teacher of the law. Um, so the best school in Israel was in Jerusalem at the temple. And so Jesus has wandered along there. Um, but what, what happens there is really interesting because unlike the usual thing where the rabbis would ask him questions and tease, tease out his understanding, what do you notice Jesus is doing? Uh, all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. So yes, he is being asked questions. But what did you see just before then? He was listening to them and asking them questions. It's like this flipping around of the status quo. Um, he's actually teasing out their understanding and engaging in a theological discussion with them. And everyone's kind of looking around going, 
what is going on here? This is, a, this is well, they might not have known exactly how old he was, but effectively this is a 12-year-old boy. And he's here with the best minds in the country and he's engaged in this theological discussion with them. And it's quite an amazing thing. But the story continues. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? What are those schools called? You went to Bet Sefer and then you went to Bet Talmud. But he doesn't refer to it by that name. He, he refers to the whole place, which is his father's house. In other words, he wasn't there just to learn from the scholars. Um, he wasn't there to, to take on their learning. Uh, he was there as the son of the father. And it reminds me of something that John said when John introduced us to Jesus uh, in John chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full. He didn't need to be filled up. He was full of grace and truth. And so what Luke describes in story form is what John is telling us here as, as a principle, as a truth statement. Jesus came and people saw something in him and they just went, wow, where is that coming from? He came full of grace and truth. He was a student like no other. And that was shown in that experience that he had at the temple. Uh, now, a boy of Jesus' age, uh, 12 and going into 13, uh, would be able to graduate from that school. And uh, he could then experience a transition. He could leave home and uh, do something quite different with his life. But Luke goes on in that passage to say he actually returned and he lived with his parents and was obedient to them. And that's a pretty significant thing to keep in mind for later on. Let's continue the process, though, because uh, Jesus is around the age of 12 now. How does he get to be a rabbi at the age of 30? Well, this is the normal process. Uh, once you've finished at the house of learning, you would become a bar mitzvah. Who's heard of bar mitzvah? Ever been through one? I haven't. But um, we, we know it today as more of a ceremony. It's, it's a coming-of-age ceremony for a Jewish boy to become a man at the age of 13. Um, and so there's lots of celebration and partying. Um, to become bar mitzvah, and we don't actually know what the ceremony looked like in Jesus' time, but everybody knew that you'd now come of age, and you were a bar mitzvah, which literally means a son of the law or son of the commands. So once you've been through memorising in the house of the book, once you've continued memorising the Torah in the house of learning, and now learned how to apply it to life and referring back to the, the sayings of those wise rabbis who'd gone before you, then you're actually qualified to be an adult. All right, now I'm able to manage my life, I can participate in, in civil life, and I can do the sorts of things that men do. And uh, one of the things that men did in the time of Jesus was they had the opportunity to participate in the synagogue. Uh, they had the opportunity to read from the Torah in the synagogue, or in fact from the Tanakh, from all the law and the prophets. So we see that happening in Luke 4. And what Luke 4 shows us is Jesus must have been recognised, must have had his bar mitzvah, because he's now recognised as a man who is able to read the scriptures. So Luke 4 verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now, by the way, Jesus has since moved from Nazareth. He's come back and he's coming back as somebody quite different from the person who had left. And he's about, about the age of 30. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, for a bar mitzvah, for a man uh, who was recognised as a man, he might have been 14, he might have been 44, um, if you'd been recognised as having graduated from those first two houses, then you could read in the synagogue, but that was it. You've done your part. Now, the interesting thing here is the story goes on. Um, as Jesus sits down, which would be the end of the story, if that had been the end of his journey, all eyes are fixed on him. They're waiting for something. What are they waiting for? They're now waiting for him to do the job of a rabbi. They're waiting for him to tell them how the scriptures can be understood and applied in their everyday life, which was something only rabbis are entrusted to do. And he began by saying to them, Today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Now what's really interesting about that is that the fact that, hey, we know this guy, surely a guy from Nazareth can't grow up to be a rabbi and a rabbi of such learning, such gracious words, such powerful teaching. It's not actually a big deal about where Jesus has come from. The big deal in this story is that they know him as Joseph's son. And, and let me tell you why that's important. See, as Jesus was a young boy and as he lived with his parents, they would have, he would have been known as Joseph's son primarily, or Joseph and Mary's son. If he had continued on in his education, he would have been known as something else. Let me tell you why. Here we go. Once you've gone through that education, which all boys did, uh, and then return to um, follow the, the occupation of their parents, then if you wanted to become a rabbi or a scribe, if you wanted to take this further, which Jesus plainly has, he's now recognised as a rabbi, a teacher, then you would go through the house of study, which means you would be discipled to a rabbi. And you would learn from that rabbi until the age of 20. So what being discipled to that rabbi means is you would, in, instead of living at home and going to school like you did when you were younger, you would now go live with the rabbi. You would follow that rabbi around. You would effectively become family with him. In fact, uh, they would often call the rabbi my father because they're signifying, I've now switched from being part of this family. I'm known as Jesus, Joseph's son. I'm now Jesus, the disciple of dot, dot, dot. And that's how you would have been known if you had continued on the path to becoming a rabbi like every rabbi had done for generations. So when the folks in Nazareth said, well, here's Jesus, here's a rabbi, we know he's a rabbi, um, we're listening to his teaching and it's amazing, but the weird thing is he hasn't done the training to become a rabbi. Um, because not only would they go on to the age of 20 uh, following the rabbi around and learning from him, uh, identifying him as their father now, uh, a select few, the very best of the best, would go on to train until the age of 30 to become either scribes, who were the people who wrote down the law and discussed the law in their kind of academic setting, or rabbis, the people who would go out and teach people the law. So that, that would be the normal path for somebody in Jesus' situation in Luke 4 to be able to teach in a synagogue, you should have gone through all of that. And so on the one hand, they're going, wow, this teaching is amazing, but on the other hand, they're saying, but this guy shouldn't be teaching. And can you see the kind of conflict that arose within them as they recognised that? 
Um, in fact, uh, as we will explore more about this in coming weeks, God willing, uh, but as you look at what it meant for somebody to be invited from the age of 13 to be discipled to a rabbi, that was a big deal. To make the cut at the age of 20 and be invited to then become a rabbi, that was a massive honour. So when you look at a rabbi, you're looking at somebody who is the best and the brightest that all of your society has to offer. Now, put yourself in this situation. You go see a doctor. You've got something really going wrong. Um, do you want somebody who received their medical certificate because they, they passed an online quiz and, and got something in the mail? You wouldn't, would you? Well, you're sitting in a courtroom and there's a trial going on and this trial is going to make a huge difference to your life. Um, how would you feel if the judge had never been to law school? That's risky. Um, are you sending your kids to school and you know that the teacher in school never got past year eight at, at school themselves? <clears throat> That's the conundrum they're facing. So they've got this guy who didn't finish his education but yet is presenting as a teacher. And that's wrong. There's something seriously miscommunicated, misapplied. There's, something's been derailed here in his process. He should not be being allowed to do that. Um, how's he getting away with it? And so there's this hostility toward him. Man, that's, that's not safe. We can't have people telling us how to live our lives um, and, and being the very foundation of, of how we uh, sleep and eat and have fun and socialise, how we get married, everything in life was based on what the rabbis taught about how to apply the law to life. We can't have people telling us how to live if they've not been qualified, but on the other hand, they're listening to them and they're just going, wow, I'm blown away. This is the best teaching and most helpful teaching, most life-giving teaching I've ever come across. And they're not quite sure what to do with Jesus. So, why are we bothering to point out all that stuff? Well, I'm going to tell you now just a short story, and I reckon it'll be really familiar with you, uh, for most of you, of how Jesus, as somebody who went through part of the process, but certainly not all of it, how was he then different from every other rabbi? You see, he didn't go through that imitating a rabbi, learning from the rabbi for another uh, 17 years like other rabbis did. There was a freshness to Jesus, something that he had that other people didn't have. How did that make a difference to how he then went and made disciples? Because at the end of his ministry, he says, okay, guys, I want you to make disciples, which in their mind would have been, okay, so we, we go through one, two, three. That's disciple making. That's what it looks like. Um, but Jesus did it differently. So what were some of the differences about how Jesus did it? Let me tell you just one story to illustrate. And this is toward the end of his ministry. He's had these guys with him for three years. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. And Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. Now for most of us that story is weird because we're just not part of this context at all and we never have to wash anybody's feet. That's just not something that we do. In those days this was just normal everyday life. Um, when you recline at a table, uh, you're lying on one elbow or on some cushions, your feet are not under the table, they're kind of 
going out behind you and they're not that far away from the next bloke's nose. Um, so if you're going to have a meal and you've been walking on dusty roads, you're uncomfortable because your feet would be sweaty, there'd be dirt between them. Um, but not only that, but you're probably smelly a little bit too. But all you need to do is wash your feet and you'll feel much cleaner and, and uh, you'll smell much better. And so normally what they do is they provide somebody there, a servant um, or a child from the household, and they just whip around with the bowl and the towel and they wash everyone's feet. Um, if it was a gathering of adults, usually the youngest adult is kind of the lowest on the pecking order. So that's John who's actually writing this story. Um, and they would get that job. And everyone just knew that's how it works. Uh, looking around, oh, it's me. <laughs> Drat. <laughs> Hate that job. And, but you just go and do it. That's just what happened all the time. Jesus, they're reclining at the table and nobody's done it. And he's kind of watched this play out and he's like, this is interesting, as the rabbi, as the teacher, he's the one who's showing them how to live. And he doesn't say, John, what are you thinking, mate? There's no one younger than you. Get the bowl. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He gets up and he takes off his outer clothes. So probably he's just left with a loincloth and a towel, um, which for a rabbi is just unthinkable. You, you guys are the top of the top. You are the brightest and the best. You go through a marketplace, everyone steps out of the way and gives you a formal greeting. You go to a banquet, you have the seat of honour. Hey, we're having a meeting at the synagogue, you get the front row. You are always number one and you've earned it. You put in 25 years of study, hard work. You've changed your whole identity in order to achieve this. We trust you as somebody who, who can handle that leadership. But the idea that you'd kind of put all that aside, all the trappings of your position, and you'd wash the feet of the group that you're a part of, that's just unheard of. But what's Jesus actually doing in this story? Well, he goes on to explain it a little bit later. From verse 12, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? Now, if you're familiar with the story, you'll know that they struggled with it. And Peter especially was like, no, this is not going to happen. But Jesus insists and he gets to this point. Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So their understanding of a rabbi and how important they are and the fact that they should be obeyed completely and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Jesus saying that's right. Um, you, you do have that element of discipleship right. You're meant to do what I say. But if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done for you. Jesus is showing that as a rabbi, as a person who doesn't have to serve, he actually wants to serve. He wants to do that because how did the story begin? He showed his disciples the true extent of his love for them. And he's showing these guys, hey, this community that I'm leading, it's a community not of, hey, if you work hard enough, you can get to the top too. It's a community where you're saying, hey, I love these guys so much. I'll do whatever it takes to serve them and love them. And that's how we build the kind of community that Jesus was about building. That's how we become the kind of disciples that Jesus is interested in calling. He's not calling people to, to go through and sacrifice and imitate and obey until eventually they can be a leader. No. He's saying, I'm, I'm creating a community where as you grow and as you mature, you become a better servant. And it's a completely different way of approaching life in community, isn't it? It's not about being at the top. It's about growing in your capacity to love. It's about growing in the wisdom that you need to see as Jesus sees in this situation what's going on in the hearts of his people and going, you know what? I know how to best show them the best way to live. It won't be by a lecture. It won't be by a rebuke. 
it'll be by that really impactful moment when the rabbi takes off all of his clothes or his outer clothes and they're going whoa they'll remember that lesson and they'll remember the principle behind it and as we think about what it means to be a, a disciple maker somebody who jesus has said hey go make disciples of all nations he's not talking to us about how we lecture people or tell them where they're going wrong although there's always a time for speaking truth primarily what he's saying is be this kind of teacher be the one who surprises them in the way that you show your love for them. You may even offend them, like Peter was offended in this story, in the way that you show your love. But you'll actually be creating the kind of community that I'm about creating, forming the kind of disciples that will be more like me and that will achieve my purposes in the world. So may we do that as we think together about the important things of our church, as we think together about the leaders that we appoint, May we remember that we're not doing it in the way the world does. We're doing it in the way Jesus did. And it's a very beautiful model to emulate. Let's pray. God, in this story out of John 13, I must admit, I see myself as John more than Jesus. I see myself as the guy who sometimes knows what he ought to do, but just doesn't want to go there. Uh, thank you for the example of Jesus, who shows us what a real leader is, what a true teacher is, what a disciple maker is. Lord, he shows that it's not just about what you know, it's about who you are and how you love. Lord, thank you that Jesus is the perfect example of how you call all of your children to live. Thank you that he didn't have to learn it from any other human teacher. In fact, he broke from their system of training in order to give this fresh start, in order to correct some of the things that had gone a bit astray. He didn't throw everything out. He continued some of the wonderful traditions that were there, the, the great uh, disciplines that had been honed over centuries. But he made a clean break with the things that no longer fit with who you are and what your word says. And we thank you that we now get to look back to him as our pattern. That we're not quoting a whole bunch of other teachers where we're saying this is what we received from Jesus. And this is what he's called us to as his children, as his disciples and as those who make disciples of others. So may that love, may that truth uh, be part of who we are. And Lord, would you show us now just in this moment of how you would have us live out of that truth in our daily lives, in the everyday living together as Jesus shared life with his disciples and, and this powerful teaching moment came out of it. What are the teaching moments that you're putting uh, us in the midst of this week? The opportunities to learn from you and the opportunities to teach others about you. Lord, would you open our eyes to what that looks like at home and at work and in the context of friendships, in the context of arguments and disagreements, in the context of all the different things that we do. May we love the way Jesus loved and may you be glorified as a result. Amen.